Welcome to the James Quanto Show, the space where I interview the world's experts and share how you can live your life to the fullest and build the life of your dreams. Today's episode features Michael Clinton, the former president and publishing director of Hearst Magazines and the best-selling author of Roar, Into the Second Half of Your Life Before It's Too Late. He's also a photographer, has traveled through 124 countries, ran marathons on seven continents, started a nonprofit foundation, is a private pilot, part owner of a vineyard in Argentina, holds two master's degrees, and still has a long list of experiences he plans to tackle. In today's discussion, Michael explains the concepts behind ROAR. R is reimagine, O is owning your stuff, like your numbers, your health, your age, your finances, etc. And A is action plan, how to make it happen, and R is reassess your relationships. Michael shares why it's important to add new people of all ages into our lives and answers how we can cultivate curiosity. Finally, he expands on why it will be a much different world in a decade or two for people over 50 years old and what we can do to prepare for it. We discussed all of this and much, much more in this entertaining conversation, so please enjoy the show. You have a concept in your book of reimagining your life, and you mentioned it often happens sort of in the middle of someone's career, but I've been thinking a lot about that since I read that in your book, and I don't feel like in my 20s or if I even really ever imagined what I wanted my life to be. Like, when should we start looking at what we want our life to look like? Well, you know, in a certain sense, your life is always being reimagined for you or by you. And you don't necessarily think of it that way. So I'll give you an example. If you ended up going to college and you and you studied and you became an accountant, let's just say, or you became a nurse or you became an economist, that's a reimagination of who you are already. Because when you started on that process, you weren't that person, right? So through life, you're always going through lots of reimaginations, whether you're consciously aware of it or not. My message is that you should use the reimagination process as an everyday practice. So think about how you might have nutrition or fitness in your in your life. You know, you have a you have your routine where you're saying, okay, this is my my fitness plan, my nutrition plan, my whatever plan. I, what I'm trying to convince people is that you need a reimagination plan because either the world's going to reimagine you, you're going to be downsized from a job, your partner's going to say, thank you, but I'm leaving. You know, you're either going to have something happen to you or be proactive, more importantly, to create something for you. And I'll give you one other example. If you have children and all those kids are off to college, all of a sudden you're an empty nester. You're in a state of reimagination right there because you're going to you're you're becoming a different person. That role of parenting, of course, will always be with you, but it's not going to be as fundamental and primary to your life because the kids are gone. I love that. There was a guest on the show, and you you may know him. His name is Bill Perkins, and he wrote a book called Die with Zero. And I do know that book. he had this concept. That the, that the you that had kids live in your home is now dead. Like you need right. to mourn that phase of you and move on to the next phase. And so often we get stuck in a phase because we don't know where to go. So how do you figure out how to reimagine? What yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, 
That's a great point that you make. And one of the things I would say about that, and we can talk about this, many people when they're at midlife or when they're stepping out of their first career, you know, here's the thing. If you're 60 and healthy today, you will probably live to be 90. So the construct that you thought was going to be your future is being is, is obsolete. You, you can't, quote, retire and, um, you know, play golf and see the grandkids or the kids. It's not sustainable for 30 years. And the construct was built at a time when life expectancies were in their low 60s. Well, now we're living to be 90. So you have to constantly be reimagining, you know, what you want to be at 50, at 60, at 80. And, you know, through that lifespan, there are lots of different tools and, and approaches that you, you can take. If you create the reimagination process as your everyday practice, you're constantly thinking about it. You're constantly, you know, you're living your life in the present, but you're constantly thinking about where do I want to go? What do I want to do? What's important to me? What are my values? What are my strengths, my weaknesses, my opportunities, and my threats in my life? And constantly be, be focusing on it. So one of the ways to answer your question in a practical way is I like to say to people, what is your favorite future? And they look at me and say, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, what's your favorite future? I mean, what, what are you dreaming about? What are you thinking about? What are you hoping for? And, you know, one of somebody might say, well, well I want to travel. I say, okay, well, that's very broad. Like, wh what does that mean? Where do you want to go? Let's focus on that. I want to go to Italy. Oh, you want to go to Italy. Okay. When are you going to go to Italy? How are you going to do it practically? Do you have enough money to do it? Who are you going with? What's your itinerary? You know, when you start getting into the layers of an idea, then you start putting practicality against the dream and the vision. Write it down, keep a journal, um, you know, plan it out so that you, you tr you're turning it into a reality as opposed to just, well, I want to travel someday. You see where I'm going? I am that person that someone says, I want to lose weight. I want to travel. I want to start this hobby. I want to find this job. I want to start this business. I immediately am like, great, let's get out a pen and paper and design it. Let's figure it out. Like we can do this. Very rarely do I have any takers though. Do you, would you find that to be true too? Yeah, because I think people, you know, we're so wrapped up in our current moment, which is good. You know, we're working, we're partnering, we're parenting, we're doing all the things that everyday life does for us. But and we're hopefully being present in our lives, but you're absolutely right. The majority of people don't think about this. So in the book, Roar, I interviewed 40 individuals who all did this very successfully. They, I call them the reimagineers. I call them a breed of people who really have mastered this notion of how to be in a constant state of reimagination. And there's some great inspirational stories in the book about these individuals and how they do it. But they're they're to your point, they're they're more the exception than the rule in terms of how how people can think about this. I think that a lot of people, a lot of my friends, family, people I've known are happy enough just to see someone else do that and <laughs> to achieve that dream. Like if if you they say for ten years I want to write a book and then someone else they know does it, like that's almost like enough. Like, hey, well they did it. Like um I loved in your book, you mentioned, you told a story about someone who always talked about, I don't know if it was a marathon or a book, or maybe it was both. And you're like, 
you're not really gonna ever do that. Like you need to stop saying it. And it's almost like, man, that hurts. But that might actually be what they need. <laughs> it, it, it was actually both. I had a friend who kept saying that he he wanted to run a half marathon, and he was saying this to everybody who would listen. Finally, I said, you know, you're you're not even running 10Ks. You're not even training. Like, why are you saying this? Like, it sounds good. Do you really want to do it? And if you're if you really want to do it, why aren't you doing it or getting ready to do it? And so, yeah, I think we all say things that make us feel good internally where we say, oh, yeah, I'm going to run a marathon. Oh, yeah, I'm going to travel to Italy. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. It sounds good in our inner voice because it's kind of saying that we're going to do something. But unless you start putting the steps in place to do it, you're really deluding yourself and you're going to be a very miserable person because it's the, the, the reality, the, the external and combined with the internal are not matching up. And that creates conflict. It seems like you're always going to the next thing. Like you're, I love your concept. I You called it layering in the book. Um, you add another layer. Oh, now we're going to add the philanthropy layer. Or now we're going to add this traveling layer. Or we're going to add this fitness layer. How did you start to kind of come up with that? And and then uh, I'm am curious when you get rid of layers too, when they no longer. Yeah, serve. yeah, no, it's, it's a great. So one of the things, um, so I my career was in the magazine publishing business, and I was the president and publishing director of First Magazines, twenty five magazines from Esquire and L to Food Network, Oprah, Popular Mechanics, a whole slew of magazines. But when I was thirty nine, I was the publisher of GQ, had a great job. I had a great family life, great personal life, everything. But but I kind of stepped back and I said, you know, I'm really a boring person to myself, that all I was doing was basically working. And the trap of defining yourself by what you do as opposed to who you are. So I developed this little concept called life layering, which I've been using as my life philosophy, which I, I it's actually my favorite chapter of the book. And the idea is to take your take your your role as parent, partner, and employee and put them over onto the side. What is it that you want to do as an individual in developing your own personas in other areas? And it could be anything. So I have an adventure gene in me. So when I turned 40, so I was going through this at 39. When I turned 40, I went with a group of friends to Africa. We climbed Kilimanjaro. I took a race car driving school class. I took some clients actually, so that was kind of fun. And then I took a flying lesson because I always wanted to be a pilot. And I was going to call, I called that my 40th, my 40th year of busting out of my own self description of being boring. And I ended up becoming a pilot and I ended up climbing, climbing and still do many mountains, hiking many mountains around, around the world. But I made this decision in my 40s that I was going to be, uh, my 40s were going to be my adventure years. So I ran all over the world doing all sorts of adventure things. And that layer of adventure living and adventure traveling now has manifested itself in a, as a lifelong layer. So, you know, I've, I've run marathons on all seven continents, including Antarctica. You know, I've done many adventure trips to look, tracking lemurs in Madagascar, to hiking in Bhutan, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that layer of richness 
And then, it, and then when I turned 50, I had a whole creative layer around photography and writing and all of the above. And then when I hit 60, I had the whole philanthropy layer. So the message is when I stepped out of my day-to-day -day job as the president and publishing director of a big media company in New York City, which could be a very, you know, heady, heady seat to sit in, what happens is a lot of people, when they step out of their jobs, they go off the cliff. Mm-hmm because they haven't really created other, you know, their wives or their husbands are saying, you know, go do something. Don't, don't hang around with me all day. I'm not interested. We know that story. Yep. The, the kids are like, Hey, nice to see you, dad. You know, and, whatever. And the, and the end of that story is how rapidly you'll age at that point. Exactly. Exactly. So if you start the life layering process, and by the way, you can do it in your twenties, thirties, you can do it in your seventies or eighties. If you start the process, so in my case, when I stepped out of my seat, I could say, hey, you know, I'm an adventure traveler. I'm a marathon runner. I'm a photographer. I'm a philanthropist. I'm a this, I'm a this, I'm a this. I had built all these layers and I just kind of leaned into all my layers of activity that were my other personas that I had developed. But if you don't have any of that, you can still do it at 50 or 60 or 70 or at any time in your life. You just have to, it shouldn't be a bucket list. Bucket lists are one-offs. That's, it's like eating an appetizer. You're still a lot hungry. It should be a commitment to something that you really are interested in and you stay with it and you let it grow and morph and change and dimensionalize. And, you know, maybe you, to your question earlier, maybe you stay with it for a lifetime it maybe the layer is done and you've done something for 10 years. So, so I'm a pilot. I flew for 20 years. I'm kind of losing interest in it at the moment. So I'm not so sure it will be a part of my future, but I'll always be a pilot. Mm -hmm. You know, it'll always be a, a self-identifier. It's just, I may not be active in pursuing that layer anymore. So, but the key to layering is to look at it as a, as a process that's more long-term over a whole set of years as opposed to, you know, a one-off here and there. It, I think it's very easy for you. I'm making a, a judgment here. Yeah. You could probably list a hundred things you would like to layer in. You just can only do so many. Like it's an endless, I, like you're constantly, like for me at least, there's so many hobbies and interests and passions I want to pursue. I, it's going to take me 50, 60 years even to dip my toes into most of them. Right. But it's not that common. I think you did a great job educating in the book how to do that. And it right. was when you talked about reconnecting with your childhood passions. Can you talk about that? Because I think that's the key. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, the book is a combination. I wanted the book to be you know, informative and, and, and interesting. I didn't want it to be homework because many of these kinds of books can be homework and groan. People groan and go, oh, that's so unrealistic. I wanted it to be practical. And so, as you as you know, the book has a lot oh, of call. Actually, can I interrupt? Yeah, I think the book what you what I read was inspiring and encouraging. So it was practical, yeah. but it really right. was like, wait, I can go do this. Right. Well, thank you. Yeah. Though that was the that was the alchemy of the book is to create those that multi multi dimension. And so, you know, to your point, oftentimes people will say, well, you know, that's great. You, Michael, you, James, you have lots of things, but I don't know what I want to pursue. I don't necessarily know. I'm kind of stuck. So um, 
one of the one of the tools is go back to your younger self and identify and find what it is that you left on the shelf. We all left something on the shelf. So an example that I use is let's say you wanted to be an anthropologist and your parents said, well, that's not a really practical career choice. Maybe you should be a teacher. You'll get a job or you can you know, pick, pick an area that's more practical. Well, your, your passion was really being an anthropologist. Okay, so how do you pick that up at 40? How do you go back to finding that thread that was really meaningful to you and re-engage in it and start building a layer out in it? You, you're probably not gonna go and be a working anthropologist, but you can certainly be involved in a lot of tangential, tangential areas. I'll, I'll give you an example, a woman that I interviewed in the book she was a sales and marketing executive until she was in her 50s, and she had always wanted to be a mystery writer, a mystery novelist. And you know, she kept, from her early, her early teenage and early 20 years, and she'd write sporadically throughout the, her, her life, but she finally did this. She said, I need to really, I really need to focus on this. So she started taking classes. She started going to master class, Dan Brown's master class. She joined the Writers Guild. Um, Mystery Writers Guild. She went to their conference. She networked. She wrote a book. Finally, she sat down. She she developed the discipline. She wrote a book and had 170 rejections, as she said, from publishers. She decided she was going to find a publisher, you know, come hell or high water. So she she said, okay, that first book isn't selling. She wrote a second book, <laughs> which sold. And she now has six mystery novels. She's in her mid-60s, and she said, you know what? I'm a mystery writer. That's my self-identification. If she hadn't picked up that thread in her you know, late 50s, and by the way, she said it took a few years before she got that first book written, and I think that's the key. Things don't happen over a weekend or a month. It is everybody that I interviewed in the book, I would say, spent a good year plus thinking about you know, if they were going back to their younger self, how were they going to explore it? If they want to go back to school, how do you do it with family pressures and budget pressures, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So back to your younger self is one of the one of the tools. I think that that makes sense, that it takes time to build the roots to make this transition, because if it happens really fast, well, that's the classic guy goes out, buys a Corvette drives it around, crashes it, and then goes, all right, I'm just going to stick to going back and watching football. You know, like right. <laughs> it, if you take the time, you're probably going to pick the right thing and then you're going to do it the right way. And I think that was what was cool about all the different examples is they were thought out and they were well executed. They weren't just on a whim. Now I did, I, I've never done this on a podcast, so it might be kind of strange. We can always remove it. But one of the criticisms I saw of your book was, well, this, these examples are great and all, but they only work if you're already successful and well-connected. Now, right. I disagreed with that. I didn't see that in the book, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Like, can anyone do this? Yeah, I think anyone can do it. You know, um, first of all, on life's journey, and I tell a very personal story in the book, you know, about coming from a poor, a very poor working class family where there was no education in the family history and there were no advantages and there were no connections and there were no anythings. And, you know, I was very conscious of the fact that I've been very fortunate in life to have 
gotten to a very, you know, successful place in the magazine business and in life. And so it is true that my journey started in my 20s, but um, there are many ways that you can start a journey in your 40s or 50s. And I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the things that I always hear is people say, well, I'd love to go back to school or I'd love to be retrained or I'd like to start a new career, but I don't have the time and I can't afford it. Hmm. And what I would say to that is time is yours to use how you feel is most important to you. So we, we all waste a lot of time, you know, guilty as charged. I always say to people, do it. You know how you do that budget inventory over the course of a week and you look at what you're spending money on uh, and you keep a little diary for one week and you realize you've spent $40 at Starbucks and you're like, do I really need to spend $40 at Starbucks? Like maybe I should buy something and put it at home and go to Starbucks once a week. And then you recalibrate your, your budget, right? Do the same thing with time. Like it's amazing how much time we waste in, in, a, given, in a given week. So time is yours to use as you want. The second thing is there is so much money around for people who want to go back to school. First of all, there are an enormous amount of scholarship uh, funds. One of them is scholarshipowl.com. There are MOOCs, which some of your listeners might be familiar with, massive open online courses that are free. There are many states that if you're 60 or older, you go to college for free. If you are, if your income is at a certain level and it is uh, a lower level, you go to college for free in certain states. In the state of Tennessee, if you go to community college or trade school, it's free. It's called the Tennessee Promise. So what does your state offer? What do what do scholarship organizations offer? Speaking of flying, there's a we talk about this in the book. There's a source of scholarships for people who want to learn how to fly. So I always say, you know, it's an excuse. There's a lot of money out there if you really want to do the work. One of the women I interviewed at 53 decided she wanted to become a medical doctor, <laughs> which is daunting at 23, not to mention 53. She ended up getting her entire education paid for through doing the work and finding the sources and, and the scholarships. So um, a, a lot of it is um, self-imposed excuses. A lot of it oftentimes can be self-imposed ageism. If you're 50 plus, well, you know, I can't get a new career. Well, I can't re re retrain myself. Well, you know, a lot of it is self-imposed. And so break through that um, self-imposed uh, barrier. And we talk a lot about this in the book and how you can do it. There, another limiting factor in that is if you're older or, it, I mean, I experienced even when I was in my 20s and I just quit my job on a whim, the people around you aren't necessarily going to support it because they're going to think you're crazy. Well, that's true. Uh, you mean if you want to pivot and do something If you want to pivot, everyone, yeah. like you, when you were, you know, traveling to Milan multiple times per year, meeting all these celebrities and they were on the covers of the magazines and it just wasn't doing it for you. Everyone else thought you were crazy to leave that. Right. Well, you know, so ROAR is an acronym, the book. So R is the whole reimagination process that we talked about and how you do it. O is owning, owning your stuff, owning your numbers, your health numbers, your financial numbers, your age. There's a whole... Um, 
a whole section of the book on that. A is the action plan. Like, how do you really make this stuff happen? And the final R, which is reassess your relationships. <laughs> and that really is to your question, because if you make a decision that you're going to step out of your job, that you're going to change your career, that you're going to move to, you want to move, leave the city or into another place, you know, you you have responsibilities of people around you, but at the same token, you know, you have people who are going to help to reinforce you and your decisions. So I'll give you two great examples. One thing you have to do is let's go to your partner. You have to assess your partner. So we all know here's the spectrum. You come home and you say, honey, I want to move to Sydney, Australia. And your partner goes, yeah, that's a great idea. When are we going to go? Let's do it. Like, let's start the planning process. That's one on the, the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is, honey, I want to move to Australia. Are you crazy? That's the stupidest idea. It's like, why, why are we doing blah, 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 blah. Where, where does your partner fit on that spectrum? So one example is a woman who wanted to go back to school in her 50s and get a master's degree. And her kids were giving her a hard time and her husband was giving her a hard time. So, you know, she kind of assessed it. She stepped back. She started by taking one course. And then she next, the next term, she took another course. And then she took another course. And the family started getting used to the fact that she was going to be taking these courses. Her, her agenda was that she was going to go get the master's, which she ultimately did. But you have to be conscious and you have to find the people who support, are supporting you for where you want to go and how you want to change and what you want to pivot to especially at midlife, because to your point, you've got a whole host of people around you at that point who are used to you as you are versus who you want to be. Do you have to add new people then sometimes? Absolutely. First of all, you have to add new people. I like to say you have to add new people of all, of all ages, because we all get in a rut where all of a sudden we're all sitting in the room and it's all the same people who are the same <laughs> age, same experience. Eh. You have to you know, I love to talk to, to people in their 20s. I love to talk to people in their 80s and everybody in between. But during life's journey, what you learn sometimes, and we all know this, is that relationships can become toxic. So you might have a best friend from college that 20 years later, that relationship just is not going where you want it to go and you may have to end it. Or at the same token, you may meet someone Here's a great example. I had a, I needed to get a new primary care physician and I was, uh, I was, uh, sent to someone who I sat down and we met and we started talking and somehow marathon running came up. I'm like, oh, I'm a marathoner. He's like, oh, I'm a marathoner. Eh. We said, one day we said, let's go for a run in the park. We live, we, we, I live in New York city. We went for a run in central park and, you know, we ended up, you know, having a lot in common, similar backgrounds, all the above. And we ended up becoming great friends. And, you know, 10 years later, this is one of my best friends in life. So you never know. And so it's important to bring new people into your life and to purge those out who are really not on team YOU, as we like to say, team you. So you, you mentioned earlier when the layering concept, which also, by the way, was, I think, one of my favorite sections of the whole book, too. So that's why I'm going back to it. But you said... Take your friends, take your career, take your family, and set them aside temporarily. Now, when you're focusing on your own ambitions, your own life dreams, your own journey, your own goals, you set them aside temporarily, but does that end up helping in those relationships in the long run? 
Well, yeah, because I think ultimately you're happier with yourself. So when you're more satisfied with yourself and that you're making progress in things that are, you know, core to you, it does end up helping the dynamic with all those other elements. I want to reference a book that I read and I mentioned it in Roar. Um, It's called The Five Regrets of the Dying. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's a very somber title, but it was a hospice nurse who for 20 plus years listened to people at the end of their lives. And the one thing that really came out that really resonated with me was I wish I had been more true to myself. I wish I had not done what my parents wanted, my spouse wanted, my kids wanted, my neighbors wanted, my community. I wish I had really been more true to myself in the kinds of things I wanted to do with my life. And if you do the life layering process, that helps to put a punctuation point around that because you're really doing something for you. And it's not selfish. It's actually important. And so if you're not fundamentally satisfied with your own self, then it's hard for you to be, you know, engaged with all these other elements of, of your life. And so, and, and by the way, it can be anything. It can be a hobby. It can be, you know, pottery. It can be riding horses. You know, I talk about a guy in the book who was a veterinarian who was very frustrated in his career and his and he started going he originally became a veterinarian because his father had horses and they were on the racetrack and he loved horses and in his late 50s he decided he was going to become an equestrian a rider when most people are finishing that process and he started riding in his late 50s he's now in his 70s he's still riding and he was that's sort of a combination of back to your younger self a life layering, a, um, you know, getting support from the people around you that this is important and creating that self-satisfaction of doing something that you really know you're going to love. And it's not selfish because I would want nothing more than my loved ones to be exactly who they want to be. And I would do anything possible to make it happen for them. If they said they wanted to achieve some goal or ambition, I would be right there with them to make it happen. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the right way. I mean, that's the right thing. We all want to support each other. And I think, you know, making sure that we're doing the things to help people move, move along. I mean, wh- one, of my, one of my great um, experience in life is that, you know, as a senior manager, as a C-suite executive, I was always, you know, moving people along in their careers, you know, giving them advice, promoting them, um, you know, giving them the kinds of feedback that's in the professional sphere. But I try to do the same thing in, in the personal sphere. I have a, a 30 year old nephew who's going to run his first marathon, uh, the New York city marathon this November. And, you know, we're all cheering him on and I'm, I'm the, I'm the Uber marathoner in the family. So I'm always, you know, checking in with him. How's your training? How's your, this, you know, we want him to be, you know, to win and be successful and do all the things that a first time marathoner should do. The, um, I my first marathon was actually the Detroit half marathon, which goes mm. from Detroit over the Ambassador Bridge into Canada, then goes through the streets of Canada and then back under the water through the tunnel. And the person that was there with me was my uncle. And right. I had never ran a race before. And he was there to make sure I could get through it because I set a goal to do it. I raised money to do it for World Vision. 
And Excellent. he was there running with me, encouraging me the entire Excellent. way. And I feel like that's the example. I had a goal. It was my goal. It wasn't his. And he helped to make it happen. And then now I can go and do that for other people. And I think that's the really encouraging, non-selfish side of this. But Phil, so let me riff on that for a minute, because this will get into, especially people at midlife and older when they're, you know, they, they may have let's say you don't have a fitness regimen or that you're overweight or you're unhealthy and you, your numbers aren't good, you know, your cholesterol, your heart, you know, all the things that are really important, especially as you, as I like to say, living longer. I was recently hiking in South Dakota. I was in the Badlands. Oh, so flight. you made it to South Dakota. I did. I made it to both. That's yeah. on my list here, <laughs> South Dakota, because it's actually one of my favorite states. The um, the Black Hills is amazing. Amazing, amazing. Well, as you saw in the book, I had two states that I hadn't been to yet, the Dakotas. And so a group of us went, went out to the Dakotas and, and, and you know, had a great experience. We went to the Badlands and Mount Rushmore and Roosevelt Nas National Park in North Dakota was awesome. But I was hiking and coming towards me was a guy who's probably in his late 60s and he was kind of like going a little slow and the trail was narrow and he was like, I waited and he came towards me and I go, sorry, I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm getting older or whatever. I said, you're not getting older. I said, you're living longer. It's a changed perspective. You have to think of it as living longer. But one of the things, especially on this trajectory of living to be 90, and by the way, your kids living to a hundred is going to be normalized. So this is going to become more and more, we could do a whole show just on that. But um, here's what people say to me when they're in their 60s. They'll say, well, you know, fitness regimen, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, listen, I ran the Toronto Marathon and I watched the first 100-year-old person cross the finish line of a marathon. And he did not run his first marathon until he was 82. So there are no excuses, assuming you're healthy and your doctor gives you the okay, you can be out there running and swimming and cycling and skiing and hiking and doing all sorts of active things to get yourself in good physical shape, whether you're starting it at 80 or you're starting it at 50. You know, it is, it, it, we, this, gets, this gets back to this notion of putting these barriers around ourselves, especially as we live longer, we'll say, well, th that's not age appropriate. Well, what the heck does that mean? What does that mean that's not age appropriate? That you can't go out and run a marathon? That you can't have a kid at 50? You know, that, that we all know that people are having kids at 50. I mean, once upon a time, that would have been unheard of. So make the, make the focus person appropriate. You know, what is it that you want to accomplish versus this, this, this restriction of age, which is, you know, an old an old construct. Well, I think that it actually just comes from other people who want an excuse they can live with. They're saying, well, it, you're too old to do that. They're actually just talking to themselves. Like, I'm too old to run a marathon, so I'm going to tell you that you're too old to run a marathon. Yeah, right. Well said. Well said. The um, You know what's funny is over the hill, is that age 40 technically? Like when you buy someone a birthday card for over the hill, is that age 40? Well, now with, with today's lifespan of 90... You know, you're an adolescent at 40. <laughs> exactly. But we're still, I'm pretty sure 40 is still, or is it 50? I don't know. It's still too young. Well, here, here's the interesting thing. 
as a culture and a society, we're going to go through a, I'm calling it the next big social revolution that's going to happen. First of all, everyone, regardless of their gender, their race, their religion, their politics, we're all going to face getting older slash living longer. And right now in the culture, there's a lot of ageism that exists all over the place, in the workplace, in cultural images, in television shows, in advertising. But here's the thing that's going to change this. The people are going to demand the change because the amount of people, first of all, every day, 10,000 people are turning 65. By 2030, one in five Americans will be 65 or older. In eight years, the first millennial will be 50. Now, when you think about the enormous amount of people who are 50 plus, the boomers and those older than them, but let's just stick with the boomers, Gen X and millennials, all being 50 plus, you know, now and in eight years starting the millennials, that is a massive amount of people who are gonna say, wait a minute, I don't, I don't want to retire. I don't believe in the retirement concept. I want to work and maybe have a second career or third career. Or wait a minute, maybe, I'm, maybe I've been divorced and single for, for 10 years, but I want to fall in love and get married again or live with a partner in my 70s. Or wait a minute, maybe I want to run a marathon, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the people are going to step back and say, all the cues that I'm getting from the culture are like, not me. They're going to force business. They're going to force government policy. They're going to force brands and marketing. You know, we did, my company owns um, A&E, which is a, the A&E Networks, History Channel, Lifetime, et cetera. We did a study of 20,000 television ads through an artificial intelligence tool in Amazon. Of those 20,000 ads, 10,000, sorry, of the 20,000 ads, one in 10 faces was 50 plus, one in 25 faces was 50 plus in female, and the majority of the settings in the mood were downbeat, passive, tech phobic, walking with the kids into the sunset, holding hands into the sunset. And you step back and you say, wait a minute, that's not who I am. That's not the people around me. That's not my cousin, my uncles, my neighbors, my friends. And so there's going to be a major reckoning because people are going to say enough, you know, and so that is in, that's already beginning to bubble up and, and happen. So I think you're going to see a big over the next decade two plus, you're going to see a big shift in how we view ourselves as in our 50 plus lives. So for the entrepreneurs listening, what businesses are needed to serve that? Do you think? Yeah, yeah. Ride the age wave. There's going to be an enormous amount of need um, in in the in the country and in the world, especially in the industrialized world, um, with all sorts of you know whether it's it's elder care or concierge service or you know fitness for people that are you know fifty plus, seventy plus, etc. One of the people I write about in the book is a venture capitalist named Alan Patrikoff who started a, a fund called Primetime Partners. And what they do is only invest in goods and services that are going to is are going to feed this age wave boom. And they fund them primarily with older entrepreneurs. Hmm. And 
What's interesting is the Kauffman Foundation in Kansas City, which has a big entrepreneurial research center, most of the 25% of all entrepreneurs now are um, 45 to 55. And usually when you think about entrepreneurs, you're thinking of that 20-something in a garage somewhere. Well, now you've got this wave of entrepreneurs because they have the experience, they have the contacts, they have access to the resources, they have a clear thought as to where they might want to go based on their life experience. So I think entrepreneurialism is having a major boom, first with people who are 50-ish, and then also um, in these areas that we just discussed, riding the age wave opportunity. That's really exciting because typically the cliche for a 20-year-old in their garage starting a business is typically to get become a billionaire. It's very yeah. money-focused reason. But I would imagine someone that has more experience is in their 40s or 50s, they clearly see a gaping problem they want to solve and that their whole heart's into it. And so they're going to be creating yeah. some really nice, useful businesses. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that they obviously would like them to be profitable, I would think, and make some money off of it too, which is good. But I think that there's more of a, you're more, you're more baked as a human being, right? You're more baked. You have, that, that's why, you know, I have a, I'm a columnist for Men's Health Magazine and I write for Esquire and some other, uh, other magazines. My recent, my current story that is um, in men's health is I don't believe in a midlife crisis. I believe in a midlife awakening because when you've lived for 20, 25 years as an adult, you know a lot about yourself now, right? You know what you're good at. You know what you're bad at. You know where you made good decisions. You know where you've screwed up. <laughs> yep. You know, you know a lot. And so what I say is take all that knowledge about yourself and awaken yourself to the next phase. So it's not a crisis. It's actually a big opportunity. So do you actually suggest to have a list of failures and losses? Oh, yeah. And, I could give you a long and list. And you do that yourself. You've got it written <laughs> do, down I'm, or is it just in your oh, head? Oh, yeah. I've got, I've got lots of failures and losses. I mean, that's part of life. I think that we all get hung up on, um, on that. But I think failures and losses, you talk to anyone who is successful and they'll be happy to tell you about their failures and tell you that they're learning learning lessons and that it's just it's it's the process on the journey to success. And so so, yeah, I mean, what you know, figure out what did you learn from it? You know, why was it uh, don't don't linger on it, but learn from it. Yeah, that is there a way to cultivate more curiosity and wanting to learn if you don't really have it? Great question. Really great question because I oftentimes people ask me these reimagineers that you that you um, interviewed and these people that you're profiling. We we now have a newsletter that comes out every month. It's a freebie. You can get it at um, roarbymichaelclinton.com. And in the newsletter, we feature two reimagineers every month, people who are, are doing this. And people say to me, "So what were the common threads?" So it's interesting. What I I always say to to people is the number one is that they were curious people. They're optimistic people. They have been disciplined people about getting things accomplished and have found that formula. And so your question about curiosity, is it nature or nurture? Um, 
you know, I think that if you step back and take the word curiosity and unpack it a bit, you know, one of the things I would say is to someone, well, what are you interested in? What are the kinds of things that interest you? If you get, if you get an answer, well, nothing interests me, then that's a hard thing to work with. <laughs> but usually there's something you can pull out, you know, that is of interest to them. I was having this conversation with someone recently and they said, well, I'm really, I'm like, I love military history. I'm like, great. Like, okay, so what do you do with it? I'm an avid reader. I can talk all about. I said, great. You know, how, how can you, what might you do with that? You know, are you interested in doing something with it? And there's all sorts of ways you can do something with that historical, that interest in that historical background, depending on how, how far you want to take it. But I think it's mining, um, uh, mining some of your your words. I, so I'll give you a story. This is a woman. She's an elementary school teacher in um, suburban Atlanta. Married her high school sweetheart. Raised two kids. Elementary school teacher in her sort of mid to late fifties. She was sort of done with teaching and. All of her friends said to her, you are so funny. You're the funniest person we know. You're funny, funny, funny. And so her daughter talked her into going down to Atlanta to an open mic session at a comedy club. She said, I didn't even know what that was. She went on stage and she started doing a riff and she said she became another person. And it was like everybody was laughing and it was what you'd expect. So she decided to sort of follow it. She was curious about this. So she hired a coach, a woman who who coaches female comics. And during the process, she was like, well, you know, I'm not funny enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not, I'm too old, blah, blah, blah. She worked through her barriers. And to make a long story short, Patricia Forehand is now a stand-up comedy comedian who works the circuit of the comedy club. And, you know, her curiosity about this feedback that she was funny led her to a place that she would have never expected in her 60s, right? That's so, so cool. Sometimes curiosity can be as basic as listening to the people around you telling you what who, who you are and what they think of you. And her word was everyone said you're funny, funny, funny. So she's let me let me pursue that a little bit and see where that takes me. The issue I think a lot of people have, and I and I'm a constant learner. I it's my favorite thing is to try new things, but I still I'm sometimes afraid of being a complete beginner and making a fool out of myself. And every time you want to take up photography, you want to be a marathon runner, you want to fly a plane, you want to go hike a mountain, you're going to, you're going to have to be a beginner at some point. Yeah. And that's scary. Yeah. It, it, it is scary, but at the same, t- it's, it's, it's the same, mo- so at the same notion, it's, it's invigorating. So you know, I was I was always my my roots were as a journalist. I started my career as a, as a journalist. Um, and so I moved over to the publishing side of the business early, early in my life. But I was a words person. And, you know, over, you know, I'm an avid traveler, as I mentioned. Um, and over my my travels, I would take a lot of photography like like many people. And uh, the feedback that I got was, you know, you're, you know, you're good. You're like, you're good. And I was like, mm, I'm not so sure. I'm like a real kind of amateur typical. So a friend of mine, she's an artist and she said, let's do a pop-up show of your photography. I was like, are you kidding me? That is like the last thing I wanted to do is to be, put myself out there. 
anyway, she talked me into it and I said, I'll do it as a fundraiser for a board that I was on, which was the Starlight Foundation. It's like Make-A-Wish. And I had a hundred photographs in a big pop-up uh, place, which anybody can do this, right? And I was like, gulp, you know, I better take a shot of tequila before all this happens. Yeah, what if no one shows? <laughs> and no kidding. And fortunately, all my friends and colleagues showed up and I sold a lot of photographs and raised a lot of money. And everyone's like, wow, your work is really good. And I was like, hmm, okay, well, maybe there's, maybe I do have a, maybe I do have a talent. And, and the thing that you have to know is that some people are going to like what you do and some people aren't going to like what you do. And any creative exercise, whether it's, you know, writing or it's photography or it's theater, you know, you're going to get, you're going to have critics. And so to me, if people say, you know, I loved your book, great. I, I don't like your book. Okay, that's fine. That's your prerogative. <laughs> but, you know, it's a creative exercise. Well, what happened from that little experience is I ended up building a layer and I ended up having many photography shows. Um, I've ended up um, having um, books of my photography published. I've had eight books of my photography published from, from my experiences, which has been unbelievable in my own mind. I ended up becoming a collector of photography. I ended up joining the board of the International Center of Photography, which is in New York. So photography, I kind of died. I went in head first, but I started in a first step that was really just being, you know, a amateur photographer like everyone else, but I kind of found a little path. So you never know where the where the branch is going to take you, and you just keep pushing out on that branch. And so I've got a very robust photography life, if you will, in many many different ways. So before I let you go, and and I'm going to give you a chance to let us know where we can find you and what you're working on next and anything else you want to share. But there was a line from the book that I think goes perfectly with that. And it sums up what I think the whole book. And someone said, you know, I can't afford it or I can't, I don't have the time or I don't have the money. I can't afford it. And the response was you can't afford not to. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's so powerful because yeah. in 50 years, you're going to wish you had done it. Yeah. Yeah. For, uh, you know, this was a story about a particular woman who was actually a newspaper reporter and all the downsizing going on in that world. And she decided in her 50s to go back to school. And she was a divorced um, single mother. Her kid, her daughter was gone. But she, in order to do it, she decided she was going to sell her house and move into, an, uh, into a, another house with a roommate, I guess, and pay rent. But take some of that money to go back to school. And her financial advisor first said, well, you really can't afford to do it, but you can't afford not to do it. And she went off and got that degree. She now works in the drug and rehab world as a counselor. And she said, I can do this for the rest of my life. I love it. And I can do this till I'm 100 and make a living and all, all the above. So you have to think about getting back to that reimagination discussion, what's it going to look like? What's your life going to look like in three, five, 10, 15 years? And do you have to make a change in order to get you moving into another path in whatever aspect of your life is that you want to make a change in? One last quick story. You know, I had a friend who said, I, you know, I'm happy with everything. I love my life. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my job. I love my, I love everything. I like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to change. 
I said, great. And then as we got into the conversation, he said, well, you know, but in a few years, I want to step out of my career and I'm really petrified. I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. And I'm like, oh, this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> this is what the reimagination, you know, get ahead of it before you go off the cliff, my friend. Yeah, you should love the phase you're in right now, but yeah, just know that course. that phase isn't forever, right? Exactly. It's all going to change. I, you know, I always like to say, unless your name is on the door and you own your business, which most of us don't, you are going to, that seat is going to go away. I don't care who you are. And and it usually goes away, and there's something much, much better in the next hopefully. phase of your life. <laughs> yes. hopefully, you plan, hopefully you plan for that and you think about that. Yeah, I'm so grateful you, you came to chat, and there's so much more we could we could chat about. We have so much in common that we didn't even get to, but I'm just curious what you've got brewing now and um where we can learn more about you yeah no thanks um the book's been a great success it's been a blessing we're going for a third printing uh the paperback edition's coming out in september of this year um you can get it on in print you can get it on audible you can get it on ebooks um you can go to roarbymichaelclinton.com to sign up for our newsletter I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. We have a Roar Facebook page. Um, I've been out and about doing talks, <clears throat> you know, around the country, and so forth. What's next is the 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 Roar message seems to have resonated so well um, with so many people that we now want to build a little bit of a enterprise out of it. So we're working on what does that look like, and how do we build off the book and create new things that continue to get the message out and have people be interactive in the, in the message. But everyone can start by joining our, our, our newsletter community because that's where we'll communicate it from. Okay, excellent. I'll put that in the show notes and um, I'll share about that when more happens and maybe get you back on the show when all that's figured yeah. out and we can, right. we can jam yeah. out about it. Yeah, no, James, thank you. Yeah, This Great. was so much fun and I loved your book and I really suggest that anyone who, who really wants to build a dream life or a life you can be proud of and feel good about this book really gives you the tools to do it and the um the expanded books recommendations you made at the end i've read so many of them and that's actually where i started before i read the book i read the acknowledgments that's my habit i read the acknowledgments oh, right and i read the end um the the the, the notes and all that and i was like this is going to be a good book if these books help to inspire it so i loved it yeah no thank you yeah no thank you i i loved it james i love the conversation and thanks for your interest in the message and i think it's um you know, it's going to be a very different world for 50 plus year olds in the next decade or two. And so many of the your listeners and you and others will drive that, drive that. So thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The James Quandall Show. The show notes for this episode and other goodies can be found at quandall.com. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the next episode. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. See you next time.